You did a good job. Thank you. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10. I'm not going to try to preach expositionally from all of these. We'd be here till Thursday, so I won't do that. But I want us to consider something here this morning that I've preached about and around, and I think I actually preached one message on from one text from just several years ago. I remember when I preached it, I had still had red hair and a red beard, so it's been quite a while since I preached it. But this last week, actually week four last, I began looking at this ninth chapter. These, this principle stood out to me as a thing which is not only worthy of preaching, but a thing necessary and needed in the day in which we live. In verses 9 and 14 of chapter 9 and in verse 2 of chapter 10, we have a word, and the word is conscience. The word is conscience. Now, generally, when we think about conscience, we think about past and present sin and deficiency of our life. Generally speaking, when we consider conscience, that's what we think about. This word is a common word in the English language and is found often in the New Testament and in the original language generally means distinguishing between what is morally good and bad, prompting to do the former and shun the latter, commending one and condemning the other. That's what we generally think of. We think of conscience. If you were a Freudian psychologist, your definition of conscience would be the part of the superego, the division of the psyche that is formed through the internalization of moral standards of parents and society that censors and restrains the ego. It sounds impressive, doesn't it? Mostly unconscious, it is composed of the ego ideal and the conscience. In psychoanalysis lingo, it is that which judges the ethical nature of one's actions and thoughts and then transmits such determinations to the ego for consideration. Basically, that's choosing between what's right and what's wrong or what's moral and what's evil. Two things need to be understood that the word moral is not in the Scriptures at all. Nowhere to be found. And the word conscience is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. It's only found in the New. And conscience, no matter how it is used, has to do with guilt. That's what it has to do with. It has to do with guilt, whether positively or negatively. If one speaks of not being able to do something with a clear conscience, he is saying that he could not do it and be guiltless. That's what he's saying. If he says that he has a clear conscience, he is saying 
that he has no guilt. That's what that means. It all has to do with guilt. Conscience has to do with the knowledge, whether consciously or subconsciously, the knowledge of good and evil. Politicians use this quite a lot in the day in which we live. There's very little discussion of compromise or of what's right and wrong in the world. If you want to make somebody jump on your bandwagon, make it good or evil. (laughs) I heard Al Gore the other night on a TV show. He had received a reward, I think an Academy Award for a movie he did on global warming. And he stood and he said, this is a moral issue as he received his... This is a moral issue. That means it's either good or evil. It's a moral issue. Now, if you want to make somebody jump on a bandwagon, make an issue a moral issue. And those who consider it good will pay a lot of money to keep the thing going. And those who consider it evil won't give you a dime. But it's a good way to work. A moral issue. But the fact is, conscience has to do with the knowledge, consciously or unconsciously, of good and evil. That's where the conscious works. And the, that fact automatically reveals the origin of the, con, of the conscience. It has to do with good and evil. Where did the conscience come from? The conscience came from the fall of man. When Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, he gained the knowledge of what? Good and evil. He got a moral conscience. That's what that means. He gained, I started to say for better or for worse, but it's not. He gained for worse a conscience. Up until that devastating deed took place, there was nothing in his knowledge but good. Everything in creation was good. Save for Adam's loneliness, of which there is no indication that he was aware, but that God was, and made the determination that it was not good that man should be alone and made him a wife. Adam's knowledge was all good and even very good. And when he disobeyed God, evil entered into the world by him, and a man has been plagued ever since. With conscience. With conscience. I know your mom and dad said, you know, listen to your conscience. Let your conscience be your guide. And in the natural realm, I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. Except our conscience is defiled. The singular result of conscience. What is the singular result of conscience? Guilt. (laughs) It's guilt. That's the singular result of conscience. This is also clearly revealed in the action of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Once conscience became his guide, when he gained the knowledge of good and evil, he immediately tried to assuage what? His guilt. He felt guilty. He felt unclean. He didn't feel like he did before he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He immediately tried to assuage his guilt first by covering it with a fig leaf apron which he sewed together. That didn't work. Then, hiding from the guilt of it, for when 
The Spirit of God moved in the garden in the cool of the evening. He hid from God in some bushes. And when that didn't work, he finally blamed someone other than himself for his problem. He said, the woman which you gave me. That all those threes are acts of conscience. And they all have to do with one thing. To try to cover up this guilt, I feel. To try to cover it up. Conscience, no matter how beneficial it might be in making moral and ethical judgments concerning behavior, can never, listen very carefully here, can never bring a person closer to God by the exercising of it. Conscience will not help you on that road. Never. (laughs) Never, ever. The conscience is either an accuser or an excuser, and this is always the case. Look at Romans chapter 2 just for a moment. Romans chapter 2. When our Lord talked about the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews having a law written on stone outside them that was kind of an arbiter of their actions that always said, well, this is wrong and that's wrong. The Gentiles didn't have laws written on stones outside them. They had something in their heart that they received when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. That thing was called a conscience. The Lord calls it here a law within. In verse 14 it says, For when the Gentiles, in chapter 2 of Romans, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, that is, they don't kill, they don't steal, why don't they do that? Because something's going on inside. It's a matter of, you know, if I did this, I'd be guilty. I'd have a conscience. Having, they having not a law, are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts. And this is not talking about the same law that's written in their hearts of regenerated men and women in Hebrews 10, but it's talking about a conscience. Because it says, their conscience, that's the law written in their heart. their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts demean while accusing or excusing one another. That's the way it always is. You excuse or accuse. That's what the conscience does. That's how it operates in the world. It is in the major realm, it is in this major realm in which works free will religion operates and can never be perfect before God. Operates in the realm of consciousness. Religion operates on the conscience with the nature that man has inherited from Adam. And though religion may and often does blind the mind to the effects of the conscience, men continue in it nonetheless. Our Lord spoke to the conscience in 1 Timothy chapter 4 when He said, The Spirit speaks expressly that in the last days men shall listen to seducing spirits. And these seducing spirits will tell them to do things and not to do things, forbidding to marry and such. And thus their conscience will be seared with a hot iron. With a hot iron. When he, told, when he wrote the letter to Titus, he said that men profess to know God, but their conscience is defiled by the good works that they do, or what they call good works, by the works that they do in religion. That defiles the conscience. Though religion may cauterize the conscience, it can never perfect it. It may quiet it down. If you do enough and work hard enough, in your false profession of religion, your conscience may go to sleep. It may go to sleep. But it's not benefited you at all. Not benefited you at all. 
You see, conscience operates. You know where a conscience operates? It operates in the realm of the broken law. It operates in the realm of the broken law. In the realm of transgression. Never in the realm of the Spirit. Operates in the realm of transgression. Adam tried to assuage his guilt knowing that he had broken the law of God. For God had said, In the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, ye shall surely die, and dying ye shall die. And once the deed was done, Adam proved that any effort of religion was dead works, didn't he? That's what he proved. He did not know that he was spiritually dead. He did not know that. He surely felt the pains of natural death because you begin to immediately do what? Stress. <laughs> That's how we would say it today. He began to stress. When you stress and I stress, what do we stress about? Guilt. Just, just say it. <laughs> That's what it is. He began to stress. And his body began to change because stress changes your body. Changes your mind. He began to stress over this new thing that was in his bosom. And that new thing was the fear of judgment for his guilt, which is the true fear of death. Most people don't fear dying because we don't know anything about it. <coughs> Do it. But we understand of, 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 of the principle of getting justice. To some degree, we understand that I don't really want to die because then I've got to face God. But if I died, didn't have to do that. Be like an atheist and go die like a dog. That'd be all right. But if I die, I've got to face God. And so men fear death because of what follows. And that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam said, I'm, I'm naked. Well, he was naked before that. Happy as a lark. Skinny dipping in the, in the, in the river Euphrates and having a good time with Eve. They was multiplying and replenishing the earth. They was happy as joyous time. This is the this is the woman you give me. I'll tell you what, I don't even have a mom and daddy. But if I had one, I'd leave my mom and daddy for her. <laughs> this is what a man will do for this. And now he says, something's wrong. What is it? This is now evil. I feel guilty. What have I done? I better do something about this. I better cover up. His conscience accused him. And his knowledge of good and evil made him endeavor to make a moral and ethical choice to undo his aching dilemma. To quiet his screaming or the screaming banshee as one old Scottish writer wrote in his heart. And the end product was that with each religious effort, whether covering, hiding, or assigning blame, he showed for all who are spiritually alive that the law, no matter what shape or form, can only define sin, assign blame, determine punishment, and be expressed in guilt. That's what the law can do. That's it. Can't do anything else. Can't do anything. Whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world become guilty before God. That's what the law says. 
Therefore, by the deeds of the law, flesh shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Shakespeare said, conscience makes cowards of us all. No matter the effort to reform or change behavior, conscience, the knowledge of good and evil, will always bring you to despair. Did you know that? Your conscience will always bring you to despair. If you want to understand what a, 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 a man spending some time in conscience is, considering his conscience, look back at Romans chapter 7. Here Paul is dealing with the natural guilt that accompanies us. A natural guilt. Verse 15, he says, For that which I would not, uh, that which I do, I allow not, or I don't know. For what I would, that I do not. But I hate what that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent that the law is good. The problem's not there. Now there is no more. That, uh, now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would do, or the good that I would, uh, the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would. That I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find in a law, a principle, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. There they are. There's that good and evil is always there. And so, if we're going to go to conscience, we're going to be in a fix. We're going to be in such a fix that Paul the apostle, a man who met Christ on the road to on the road to get uh, Damascus, was miraculously saved by Jesus Christ, taught the gospel by a man named Ananias and three, three years on the backside of the desert by Christ, that man, when he deals with this, says this, Oh, wretched man that I am! That's where conscience is going to end up. It's always going to end up there. Who shall deliver me from the body of this thing? You would never think that the same man who said those things about himself can't do what I want to, what I don't want to. That's what I do. What I hate, I end up doing. What I love, I can't do. I just There's a struggle, a war going on. Good and evil, good and evil, good and evil. That's the moral and ethical decisions of conscience. Worry him to death. It's amazing a man like that could say just a few verses later, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. What happened? Somewhere... Along the way, Paul got that guilt removed. He got guilt removed. What a thing. Where there is sin, there is the law. There is the law. And where the law is, there is sin. There is sin. Look over First 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 56. The sting of death. What is death? It's a punishment for sin, isn't it? Now what God said to Adam in the Garden of Eden? In the day ye eat of the fruit, thereof ye shall surely die. The soul that sinneth it shall die. The wages of sin is death. The sting of death is what? Sin. It's the reason for it. What makes it so bad? But look what it says. And the strength of sin is what? <laughs> the law. The strength of sin? Most religions say the strength of holiness is the law, wouldn't it? 
The strength of righteousness is the law. He didn't say that. He says the strength of sin is the law. Why? Because that's all the law was ever designed to do. Show you what sin is. Show you what sin is. Where there is sin, there is guilt. And where there is guilt, there is conscience. And any preacher who tries to bring his hearers to the law for righteousness is entirely discounting the work of Christ. Making it of no effect to his hearers. He, operating in conscience, addresses the conscience of men and women, reminding them of their guilt. He then takes them to the law so that they might make moral and ethical choices to cover, hide, or blame someone else or something else for their guilt. That's why sin today is in a box, or a bottle, or a bordello, or on a TV tube, or on the internet. That's where sin is, to men's mind. Because that you can feel guilty about. (laughs) Those things, they operate in the realm of guilt. Unbeknownst to such a preacher because he is operating from the conscience, is that he is actually declaring to his hearers that there is no remedy for sin. The man who preaches to your conscience is Antichrist. The man who would have you come back under the law is Antichrist. Because Paul said there are some men who believe they are teachers of the law. He said they're vain janglers, but they believe they are teachers of the law. And they would try to bring men back under the law not realizing what they're actually doing. By preaching the law, they're saying to the man whom Christ has made righteous, you're not righteous. By preaching the law, they're saying to the man whose sins have been put away, your sins have not been put away. That's Antichrist. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free and be not uh, under the yoke of bondage again. You seek righteousness by the law. Christ is nothing to you. Can't have it both ways. Can't have it both ways. And this is specifically what Paul is dealing with in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. The service performed toward God by observing the rites and ceremonies of the law cannot make the comers thereunto perfect pertaining to conscience. That's what he says. These services cannot remove guilt and in fact incite further guilt. If they were able to remove guilt, they would have ceased to be offered. That's what he says in chapter 10 and verse 2. Because the magnitude of the act of removing guilt is such that once it is done, it never needs to be repeated. Once guilt is gone, it's gone. And he describes it this way. For the law... Oh, excuse me. I'm back in Romans. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins? What does that mean? No more guilt. No more guilt. Paul makes a remarkable statement in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 9. He says, The Holy Ghost 
This signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to conscience. None of these things removed guilt. None of these things answered sin. Say, well, that's just some antinomian view. Yeah, if you want to call the Holy Ghost an antinomian, you go right ahead. The Holy Ghost is the one who signifies this. Taking the entire matter of service to God. And that's what we want to do, isn't it? We want to serve God. We desire in our hearts to serve God. Every believer wants to serve God. But the Holy Ghost takes the whole matter of service to God by the law and setting the law to represent the Old Covenant. He says the Holy Ghost teaches precisely that all those efforts were designed to fail in removing guilt. In the performance of these things, the conscience was indeed incited to guilt. Verse 3 of chapter 10 says, For in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. There's a remembrance in those things. These all operated in the realm of the flesh and therefore could not please God. Look at verse 10 of chapter 9. Which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation or until the time of Christ. Now, do you want you to look at two words there? The Holy Ghost signifies that these rites and ceremonies in order to please God, in order to serve God, are actually carnal Ordinances. Carnal ordinances. All these rites, according to the Holy Ghost, God and the Spirit, were carnal. And that's hardly, hardly an adjective that men would apply to holiness, would they? Or justice, or justness, or righteousness. Yet men stand in pulpits and preach the law as a means of righteousness. And what they actually produce in men is a carnal holiness. <laughs> Think about that. Roll that over in your mind. A carnal holiness. A holiness of conscience. A holiness that lives off guilt. A performance of the knowledge of good and evil. The Holy Ghost simply does not teach. Now listen very carefully. The Holy Ghost simply does not teach that a man should go to the law for righteousness. Ever. Under no circumstance, in any form or for any reason, because to do so is carnal. Is carnal and not spiritual because it only results in works that are born from death. Look at Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Paul makes the distinction between being married to Christ and being married to the law, being under Christ and under the law. Romans chapter 7, verse 4, it says, Wherefore, my brethren, ye are also become dead to the law. What does that mean? Just exactly what it says. By the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that ye should bring forth what? Fruit to God. Well, what about before, when I was under the law, trying to be righteous, keeping all those ceremonies? Verse 5, For when you were in the flesh, the motions or the passions of sin, which were what? By the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto what? Death. That's all it produced. 
I lived my life in religion producing dead things. And if you don't know Christ this morning, that's what you're doing in religion. You're just dead. I'm telling you, it's just dead. Operating in the realm of conscience. Conscience is not spiritual. And all works that exude from the conscience produce dead works and cannot ever be regarded as service to God. You make a moral choice throughout your life. You do make moral choices. Don't ever think that any of that has to do with anything with your relationship with God. Just the opposite of truth. If you think that your moral and ethical choices, and I hope they're good ones, but if you think that that is service to God, you are horribly mistaken. And if you think that those moral and ethical decisions you make are dead, corrupting corpses. They're dead works. The impetus of conscience is the broken law. The impetus of conscience is this. I'm a transgressor. (laughs) That's it. That's what conscience has got to tell you. This is what the Holy Ghost teaches. And the Holy Ghost, we know, wrote the Scriptures through the use of men. Well, is there anything, any such thing as a good conscience? Can the accuser that we are born with in our bosom ever be silenced? Can he be silenced? It is clear that it cannot be silenced with the deeds of the law according to this passage of Scripture. For such deeds actually only increase the volume of his voice. Religious service designed to keep the law and render service to God is dead. Graveyard, dead. Twice dead and plucked up by the roots. And guilt is the incentive for religious service to ease the conscience. That's what it's designed to do. The only problem is, and I speak from many experiences, many years of experience, the only problem is it never works. I practiced religion all my life. And conscience always told me, you don't have anything. You're a transgressor. And conscience was right. That's what I was. But what does the Holy Ghost signify that will silence the conscience? A perfect sacrifice. That's what he says. A perfect sacrifice. A spiritual sacrifice. We've got to leave the realm of the flesh and the realm of the natural and go into the spiritual realm. A sacrifice must be offered that has nothing whatsoever to do with yours or my religious service. Yet produces true and acceptable service to God. The conscience is only silenced when, now listen very carefully, when there is no grounds upon which it may accuse. That's when it's silent. If it ain't got nothing to say, it can't say nothing. That's what I'm saying. If it's got something to say, you can rest assured it's going to say and say and say and say and say. The only way it will stop its accusations, which are true, But the only way it will stop its accusations is if it is brought to a place where it can find no thing at all to accuse you of. 
This means that there can be no law to define, no sin to record, and no guilt to condemn. That's what's got to take place. Listen very carefully. No law to define it. No sin to record. No guilt to condemn. All those have got to be taken care of if the conscience is going to shut up. How's yours doing this morning? <laughs> and that sacrifice is the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ the Lord. Look at a few verses of Scripture, beginning with verse 12 of chapter 9. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, Jesus Christ. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. He did it. And listen, the language of there that is that He already had it when He went in. He had already obtained it. He entered in having obtained. When did He obtain it? He obtained it on the cross. When He died in our room instead. He, that's eternal redemption. So redemption... Eternal redemption has something to do with the quieting of the conscience. Look at verse 15. For this cause He's the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of an inheritance or an eternal inheritance. Look at verse 22. For almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Verse 26, Then must He often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Look at verse 12 of chapter 10. By, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he said before, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Not necessary where remission takes place. The conscience is purged, quietened, silenced when every basis for condemnation is removed. And only then. Notice the allusion that Paul makes in verse 13 to an Old Testament sacrifice. The red heifer. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh. How much more does the blood of Christ do? He uses the heifer here. You remember our study in Numbers on the red heifer whose ashes mixed with water symbolically cleansed the defilement of the flesh? Do you remember what defilement those ashes symbolically cleaned? The sin of touching a dead thing. <laughs> That's what it was about. If you touch something dead, you got to be washed. And listen, if you touch if you touch dead works, you got to be washed. But the ashes of a heifer won't do you any good. Won't do you any good. I say to you. 
When conscience says, do something, don't touch it. Don't touch it. The ashes of a heifer cleanse the defilement of the flesh. The blood of Christ purges the conscience from dead works. That's what it says in verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works? What does that mean? What does that mean? Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered if they had been made perfect? Because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sin. Perfect as pertaining to conscience. No more conscience of sins. What does that mean? It means that there is no basis. If you're a child of God this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no basis upon which the conscience can accuse you. No basis for it. There is no more conscience of sin. What a word. It doesn't say consciousness. Same word all the way through. Conscience. The law couldn't make you perfect as pertaining to conscience. Christ has purged your conscience from dead works. There is now no conscience of sin. No conscience of sin. What does that mean? I'm not guilty. No guilt. Well, if you believe that, you just go out here and live like you want to. Don't you? Absolutely. <laughs> Anybody got a gun to your head? So, well, you know, I know what's right and what's wrong. And I know you do, and you make moral and ethical decisions. But listen to me very carefully again. Don't apply that to righteousness before God. That's dead works. That's dead works. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. Now, what Paul said, no condemnation. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, through my conscience. Christ coming in the likeness of sinful flesh destroyed sin in the flesh. Who shall lay any charge to God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather is risen again, who even sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Here's what I want to tell you this morning. We serve the living God. Because Christ has purged our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We don't serve Him by conscience. We serve Him by faith. We don't serve the living God to cover or hide or assuage our guilt. If you're doing that, that's dead works. Say, well, I come to church so people won't really know what I'm like. We know what you like. You know what I'm like. You ain't got nobody fooled. Please. You might act humble. You might even look humble. You might hold your head in a certain way, carry your Bible a certain way. I know what you are. 
was watching this show the other night on TV. It was about these guys setting up these internet porn sites for guys to have young children. And then these idiots would show up at these houses and get caught and get put in jail, you know, and you think, well, don't they think? And as I was watching, I said, I'm sorry, no good so-and-so, so I'll just shoot them upside the head and then I realize if it's in them, it's in me. I know what I am. I know what you are. And listen to me. No matter what moral or ethical decision you might make in this life, never attributed it to serving God because it ain't. We serve God by believing Jesus Christ. By believing Jesus Christ. And we serve God not to assuage our guilt or hide our guilt or blame someone else for our guilt. We serve God because we are not guilty. That's what it said. We have no conscience of sin. We don't have the guilt of sin. Our works are not dead. They are lively because they are spiritual and acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, according to 1 Peter chapter 1. We are lively stones, living stones, a royal priesthood, offering acceptable, offering sacrifices unto God acceptable by Jesus Christ. Looking to Christ makes the conscience mute. When I feel guilt... And I do, and you do too. <laughs> when I feel guilt, it is because I have breathed life into my conscience. I have. And the result will be that, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll try to do something to cover my guilt. I'll try. You know it. Isn't that what we do? Well, maybe if I pray more. <laughs> maybe if I read my Bible more. That's good to pray more and read your Bible more. That's a good thing. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Unless you're trying to cover your guilt. Amen. I'll try to hide from God. Or I'll blame someone else for my sin. Or something else. And you know what? I'll end up in despair. Because it's dead works. And when I look at my Savior, knowing that He has obtained eternal redemption for me, knowing that He has purged my conscience from dead works, knowing that my sins are remitted, knowing that there is no ground upon which I can be accused or condemned, knowing that I have been perfected as pertaining to conscience, knowing that God will not remember my sins and iniquities, I then and only then can serve the living God. And I will. Any other reason results in dead works. Any other reason than looking to Christ. So we say, thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. And it ain't the conscience. It's the blood and righteousness of our blessed Savior. Father, bless us to our understanding of prayer in Christ. Good day. God bless you.